Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about West Ham's search for a new identity. The key point to make is what do I mean by identity? Every football club, professional football club, has a, an identity. It's how the fans, the players, the ownership self-perceive. It, it's a bonding agent. It creates narrative, uh, self-mythology that makes a football club special to the fans, makes people turn up, you know, go away, you know, spend thousands of pounds, put a huge amount of emotional energy into this entity, into this club. Now, West Ham's identity, I suppose a lot of it is local. It's localism. It's the local boy made good, you know, both players and managers and to a lesser extent ownership. You know, there's the part the sort of narrative point. It's, you know, West Ham's contribution to the you know seminal nineteen sixty six England winning the World Cup at home at Wembley against West Germany. You know, Hurst, Peters, Bobby Moore. Hurst gets the hat trick against West Germany. Peters gets the other goal. Bobby Moore is the captain, the linchpin, the ideal, you know, English equivalent of leadership. And yet, it's, such, it's a proud heritage. You know, they're from East London. They symbolise the area. Their fans symbolise the area. And it is in some ways special. And yet, for me personally, I, I think West Ham, out of the sort of traditional big English clubs, have probably the most problematic idea identity you know it's somewhat limiting so I think the classic example is that West Ham gave so much towards England winning the World Cup in terms of the starting 11 and yet England win the World Cup that same season West Ham finished 12th they have this wonderful track record of youth development you know in in the modern era we're talking about uh, Lampard yeah Frank Lampard Joe Cole Rio Ferdinand, Michael Carrick, Glenn Johnson, even Jermaine Defoe to a slightly lesser extent. He was bought as a young teenager from Charlton in a controversial deal. But all of these players succeeded elsewhere. You know, Lampard, Cole, Johnson with Chelsea, you know, Defoe with Spurs, Rio Ferdinand with Manchester United, Michael Carrick with Spurs and Manchester United. You know, there was no financial dividend that came from all of the, that talent in other words it you know in two you know they had that talent at the start of the 90s early 2000s you know all of those players ended up being sold they went down in 2003 you know the best finish they had in the premier league was fifth under harry redknapp in other words for all of that talent it didn't significantly benefit west ham they all had to be sold only Joe Cole ever made it back to West Ham. And even then, that was not the first move after he left Chelsea. It was a secondary move. He moved to Liverpool. He still wanted to have success at the highest level and saw Liverpool as the place to do it. It was only once you know he was out of the team at Liverpool did he make the sort of return home to West Ham. None of the other players on that list did play for West Ham again. So really to start this, I think we need to 
understand, you know, a sort of plotted history of, you know, West Ham's identity and how it's been impacted by their results on the field. There's always this, there's a pattern, there's a sense that success is never built upon. You know, when you look at a successful team, there's a narrative underpinning to it. There's the sort of the foundational DNA. You know, with Tottenham, the foundational DNA really effectively begins with Arthur Moreau's push and run team in 1950. You know, that's where the building blocks, the DNA of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club come from. The bit before then is romantic and it's you know inspiring, but it's the 1950 Arthur Moreau team that starts it. They get promoted from you know Division Two. They win Division One. From that team, you get Bill Nicholson, who ends up being the double-winning manager, who you know put his stamp on Tottenham Hotspur. You had Alf Ramsey, who ends up coaching Ipswich and England to the World Cup. You know, from Bill Nicholson, you end up with the you know, players such as you know, Glenn Hoddle, you know, you know, Keith Birkinshaw, and you know Bill Nicholson work together in the success in the eighties. It's that kind of you know plotted. Where And you can see what Tottenham were doing, how they bought players, how they developed players, how their youth team worked, all of which created an idealised version of how Tottenham could get success. So with West Ham, what you have is, so in, I suppose historically they have been a second, small second division team and had managed to you know, get into the first division in the you know fifties and sort of stayed there for a few years. So we'll start in sixty four. You know they they win the FA Cup. You know wonderful moment for the club. First you know major honour, but it, it's followed up by finishes in the first division of ninth, twelfth, sixteenth. You know the next year they win the Cup Winners Cup. You know a European trophy titles, two back to back trophies. But the next few years are you know, just lower mid-table, they, they don't build upon it. So you get to 1975, they win the FA Cup. Fantastic, next year they are runners-up in the Cup Winners' Cup. You know, again, another European run. But those years are bookended, you know, of, you know, the next two years are finishes of 18th and 17th. You know, by 1978, they're relegated. They spend a couple of years in Division Two. They win the FA Cup against Arsenal. Trevor Brooking gets a goal. You know, West Ham legend. You know, local boy done good. As a second division club, they get promoted. They get finish. You know, they finish as League Cup finalists. So that's you know a huge platform to then kick on. But then it's followed by finishes of ninth, eighth, ninth again. In eighty six, you had the the sort of seminal West Ham season. They finished third. You know, with you know, McAvenny up front, with Tony Cotty, with you know, John Lyle as manager, West Ham legend. And then it's followed the next two seasons by a finish of 15th and 16th. By 1989, they're relegated. You know, they're promoted in 91. Get to the FA Cup semi-final, 92 in the next season, relegated. You know, in 19, they get back into the Premier League. In 99, they have their best modern finish, 5th. You know, they had Lampard, Michael Carrick, Joe Cole. They had all this sort of talent, you know, Ferdinand. But then it's followed by finishes of 9th, 15th, 7th in 2003 with all of that talent. even And the money that they got from selling Rio Ferdinand, from selling Frank Lampard. 
you know, that was £29 million they got in really basically 18 months. It's a huge amount of money. They still had the talent of Carrick, they still had Defoe, they had Glenn Johnson, you know, they had David James. They, you know, they had a squad that was good enough to kick on, that should have been competing for European football. But in 2003, they're relegated. This was a hammer blow relegation. So not only did they lose Defoe, Carrick, and those two players ended up, and Canute, those three players ended up helping Spurs get to the next level. West Ham, on the other hand, was still in Division 1. Okay, so they get promoted again in 2005. First season back, they finish ninth. They have the FA Cup runners-up. They've got a young team, a good manager in Alan, good young manager, Alan Pardew. And they follow it up by finishes of 15th, 10th, 9th, 7th, and by 2011, they're relegated again. You know, it's a club that has been scarred by these relegations, by all of the talent that they had developed and lost. All of these great players, all of these great style of football that West Ham, when they're at their best, play. But I suppose the tragedy behind it is, is that there was, I suppose, a, a lack of finance, a lack of, you know, ownership that was able to get West Ham kicked on. The ground was always quite small. It's a yeah, the Berlin ground, which is you know more colloquially known as Upton Park. You know, it had. It was an old school ground. You know, on its day, it could be intimidating. It was loud. It was passionate. You knew that you were in for a battle at West Ham, especially if you're a Spurs player and a fan. I mean, one of the main kind of, you know, I suppose examples of where West Ham's lack of you know financial muscle was in the. Bonds issue of the 1990s. In other words, by this stage, you know, with the Taylor report after the Hillsborough tragedy, all of these old grounds would have to be brought up to code. They'd have to be all-seater. Now, Arsenal and you know, Twickenham in the rugby had used Bonds issues, and they'd been very successful, they'd raised money, and they'd helped you know, develop the ground. And West Ham decided to do the same thing. They got expert advice. You know, they did research with their fans and said, would you be interested? And yet the bonds issue failed massively. It didn't get the £15 million they needed. It produced a huge ruck between the fans, between the ownership. And it showed you just how difficult it was for West Ham you know, to compete at the level they wanted, that their fans had wanted. You know, when, when West Ham are good, they can compete. They can be a top 10 team. They do have a fan base that can support that. They are in London. But still, and I suppose one of the problems that the West Ham identity has is, is that it's not a singular identity. You know, Newcastle have a singular identity. Um, Everton, to an extent, have a singular identity. Yes, you have the you know elephant in the room of Liverpool's success, but Everton in of themselves are successful. They are not defined by what you know Liverpool do. Whereby, in to an extent, West Ham are kind of trapped in the middle. You know they're trying to compete upwards against Spurs, Arsenal, and Chelsea, who are historically bigger, historically more wealthy, more successful, 
and then below them you've got the likes of you know Charlton and Millwall, you know, and to even to lesser extent, you know, Leighton Orient. Teams on their doorstep that are all competing, all trying to get to West Ham's level and above. So I think going into the we need to kind of have a better understanding of you know what really contributes you know West Ham's identity. For me it's you know, a celebration of the underdog. It's localism, sympathised by a commitment for you know, romanticism and good football. And it's all, they all are interrelated. They all are the key parts of what makes West Ham West Ham. You know, the point is you need good football to survive as a Division 1 club. The point is Millwall have had a couple of years in Division 1 and, you know, they can play good football, but it's much more hard-nosed. In other words, you know, you know when managers at Mill talk about the football and the players, it's more about your mentality. You have to battle. You have to fight for the cause. The fans have to accept you. So there isn't as much of a burden on you know playing good football, on staying in Division 1. Millwall will follow you come what may, whether that's in League 1, whether it's in the Championship, whether it's in the Premier League. All you have to do is hold on to that Millwall ethos. And so as a result, because West Ham don't have a huge amount of money, there's always going to have to be that, you know, historically, that focus on youth development. You know, you have to be able to develop good, young, cheap players who play the West Ham way to survive as a Division One club. You know, the localism is, is key. You know, in the ownership, in the management, you have the Kearns family, who had been, you know, founder, you know, the, one of the founding families of West Ham United. You know, in you know, Terence Brown, in the Gold Brothers and Sullivan. There's always been, you know, for long periods, stretches of its history, West Ham have been owned by local men made good. You know, in management, they've had, you know, John Lyle, Billy Bonds, Harry Redknapp, all who spent you know, the vast majority of their playing careers and then became long-term managers. You know, even Ron Greenwood, who wasn't connected in any way to West Ham but prior to becoming manager in 1961, became one of their own. You know, he spent you know, sort of 14 years there as a manager, further two or three years there as the sort of general manager. I mean, there was even a sort of modern equivalency in there hiring of Slaven Bilic, who'd been a player there for a short period of time, but had been really, really loved by the fans. And so almost became a sort of modern, you know, equivalence of, you know, local boy made good. And, you know, the West Ham celebration and their fans of the underdog, you know, the players like Billy Bonds and Mark Noble, you know, even Julian Dix, you know, in some ways because they personify the working class heritage and loyalty you know, that the fans show. You know, they're almost the you know, fans representative on the field. They are the people that would battle and give every single last drop of blood for West Ham United Football Club. And they understand the fans. They are fans. And those, that celebration is also, in some ways, a, 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 with a sort of touch of bittersweet about it. It's because Bonds and Noble didn't leave, unlike the other players. You know, um, Boy Moore ends up at you know, Fulham. He 
in the late 60s and early 70s had been desperate to move to Spurs and the West Ham ownership had turned him down. But the, I suppose the downside to the the love of the underdog is, is that it's the relative paucity of their careers. You know, neither Bonds or Mark Noble or Julian Dix ever had an England cap. Um, Bonds got selected in a squad, was on the bench but wasn't brought on. Mark Noble played, you know, sort of multiple times for the under-21 team, had been a captain, got something like 20-odd caps, but never made it into a full squad. And it's, it sort of underlines the inability to break through to the upper echelons of the English games or to have consistent success. You know, when you look at a list of West Ham's, you know, appearance makers in the Premier League, they're not, you know, gifted football players. They're not people that kicked on. They were just... You know, none of these players have you know, full England caps. None of these players moved on to a higher level. They were just good, solid West Ham pros. Mark Noble, you know, Carlton Cole, who did get a few England caps, but you know, seven caps, no starts, no goals. Steve Potts, James Collins, who played a, yeah, two or three spells at West Ham, but was you know, a... Good solid player for Wales. Wasn't one of their stars, you know, like Aaron Ramsey, Gareth Bale. You know, Trevor Sinclair played 12 times for England. And I think the most famous sort of part of his international career was that he made, you know, four, you know, five appearances for England at the 2002 World Cup in left midfield. But it was because there had been an injury to Danny Murphy. And then there had been an injury to Owen Hargreaves. There had been an injury to you know, Stephen Gerrard. All of those kind of bits and pieces. You know, he was kind of a fourth, fifth, fifth choice. And he did perfectly well, but you know, he didn't score, didn't create an assist. You know, and Robert Green you know, had a handful of caps for England. He's most famous for you know, that horrible mistake he made against Clint Dempsey in the World Cup. Where he let the ball, fumbled the ball over the line. It's interesting if you look at their sort of top Premier League goal scorers. You know, historically, you're talking Paolo Di Canio, whose end of his West Ham career was you know relegation in two thousand and three. You know, Mark Noble was their second top goal scorer in Premier League history. And this is twenty one plus seasons, <clears throat> and that's forty three goals of which twenty five are penalties, two were free kicks. So this is someone in his you know, 14, 15 years in the Premier League is averaging pretty much one goal from open play per year. You know, Just outside the top 10 is Julian Dix on 22. He was a left-back centre-half who most goals were penalties and free kicks. You know, it's, you know, even you know, Trevor Sinclair is you know, fourth on the list and his last you know, few games for West Ham was the 2003 relegation season. You know, Carlton Cole got relegated. It's with West Ham, I think it's interesting to kind of take, let's say, you know, I'd argue probably Paolo Di Canio is one of West Ham's greatest Premier League players. You know, he's their top goal scorer in Premier League history. And, I mean, his best season was 99-2000, where he got 16 goals finished, 7th in the top goal scorers. And yet... Just below him, so he's at the 16 goals, two were penalties. So he scored 14 goals in open play. And you know, just below him on the list is Stefan Everson of Tottenham and Chris Armstrong of Tottenham. Now Tottenham in that season finished you know, mid-table, and they both got 14 goals in open play. Neither of them took penalties. So that's the thing. No one is accusing, you know, is 
would say that Stefan Everson and Chris Armstrong were great Tottenham players. They were just solid players, but they really summed up the era when Tottenham really just finished mid-table most years, some years more promising than others, others more disappointing. And there was a lack of progress, a lack of you know, hope that things were going to get better. Now, as wonderful a player he was and as a sort of personification of West Ham United's fans in terms of his emotion, in terms of his genius, there was always a, a hint of underachievement. In other words, the Decanio years didn't lead to West Ham going anywhere. In the end, they still ended up relegated. <laughs> Which really neatly leads on to... Well, so why are West Ham desperate to achieve a, a new identity? I think fundamental changes in the you know, demographics of the West Ham area. You know, traditionally, West Ham fans were local. They were, you know, it was you know, walking to the ground. And obviously, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, th there was a huge move to the you know, suburbs. And so it was, you know, West Ham became more of a focal point. Upton Park, you know, Berlin Ground became more of a focal point. You know, in other words, you'd travel in from Essex, you'd go to, you know, Nathan's uh, Eel and Pie shop, and you'd go to the ground where your dad went, where your granddad, where your great-grandfather did. It became more of a sort of pilgrimage. You had the decline of local owners in the Premier League. It, you know, foreign owners started coming in in terms of you know Abramovich, yeah. Abu Dhabi. Mm. Yeah, as the Premier League grew and grew, you had the you know there's an increase in player movement and turnover. English football as globalism. You know the age of localism in English football, you know, is dead. And I think it affected West Ham more than most teams in the Premier League. West Ham had always relied on their core local support, their, you know, the pillars of the club. You know, the Julian Dixes, the Steve Potts, the Billy Bonds, you know, players who would spend you know, who were, you know, local boys that made good, who went up through the youth system, who played for West Ham for their whole careers and then became managers. That whole ethos is isn't replicable anymore. In this podcast, I've described how you know, the, the sort of building blocks of, of how Tottenham sort of created their success. What makes West Ham successful? And for me, it's, it's managers who marry the best elements of the West Ham identity. You know, youth. As a cornerstone, you know, good football, and also signing unheralded prospects, you know, or canny signings. It's a mixture of sort of new blood, you know. When you have you know Ron Greenwood, you know, because pre before then West Ham had only had sort of two or three managers. They were all West Ham born and bred players, then managers, and really, Ron Greenwood was the first outsider to come in. And it was his first managerial job. He'd been an assistant at Arsenal, coached in other different places. This was his first proper managerial role. And he took on the, and really built on the academy work that West Ham had done, which created the great players that we know in terms of Martin Peters, you know, Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst. 
and the style of football that he wanted West Ham to play. And obviously his manager for 13 years, general manager for three years, he really played a huge role in creating the modern West Ham. The, you know, what was built next was always had an element of Ron Greenwood's you know, style over it. I mean, if you look at you know, John Lyle, you know, West Ham through the youth system, you know, his playing career ended early, became a coach at West Ham, you know, worked his way up to become manager. And you know, his greatest success was when they finished you know, third in the 80s. You know, when he had you know, Frank McAvenny, who had been an unheralded signing from St Mirren up in Scotland, and Tony Cotty, who'd gone through the youth system. You know, with Harry Renlap, you had you know, his great team that finished fifth. You had you know, Lampard and Ferdinand, who'd come through the youth system. You know, the signings of Di Canio, who you know, was a, it was a risky signing. You know, Di Canio had had success in Celtic, but had fallen out with the, with the ownership, with the manager, had come played for Sheffield. Wednesday had done well, but he'd then been thrown out of the club because he pushed over Paul Alcock referee got a you know, 11 match ban and at the time there was a huge furore there was a sense that you know an expectation he was never going to play in English football again you know West Sheffield Wednesday were desperate for him to get him out of the club and Harry Redknapp signs him is a mercurial player and he has his greatest run of you know I suppose form in his career and they had signed him for a couple of million pounds you know they signed Frederick Canute Hand, you know, unheralded prospect from Spain. Sorry, France even. You know, they'd got Jermaine Defoe as a young player. You know, they signed him from Charlton. It was a very contentious deal, as I said. You know, with the success that Alan Pardew had when he took them to the, you know, within minutes of winning the FA Cup final against Liverpool, when you had Gerrard on one leg from you know thirty-five yards spanking it into the bottom corner. You know, his team had been built on you know. Anton Ferdinand, you know, Nigel Rea-Coker, you know, Dean Ashton, and it's relatively unheralded signing from, you know, the lower leagues. And so what these managers were able to do, you can't be successful just following the West Ham identity, by just, you know, being West Ham through and through. What West Ham effectively need is you need you know, the new blood of Greenwood and Pardew, who were both young, ambitious managers. You also then had the local boys made good in terms of Lyle and Redknapp, who brought their own, you know, ideas. You know, Harry Redknapp was very much a, a wheeler-dealer. <laughs> you know, Lyle was a bit more of a sort of coaching mind. You know, what unites them was their ability to, you know, circumvent, at least in the short term, the relative financial weakness and the lack of standing West Ham had. You know, it was their first, second managerial jobs. You know, you can make the arguments that they were undermined in terms of Lyle having to sell McAvenny to Celtic, having to sell Cotty to Everton and not being able to replace those players, which, you know, contributed to the relegation at the end of the 80s. Redknapp, you know, wasn't able to really utilise the money that that he'd got from Rio Ferdinand and from... to really strengthen the team. You know, the wheeler-dealer side of of Harry Redknapp was almost a corollary of 
you know, the lack of funds. In other words, he wasn't able to sign two or three players. It really had to be five or six. So in other words, there was always a sense of you know, ducking and diving, of trying to, you know, lottery ticket signings. You know. And so eventually when he falls out with Terry Brown, Terence Brown, the chairman over you know, the transfer budget, when he walks out, you know, that starts the, you know, puts the seeds in motion for the relegation in 2003. You know, they pick his, you know, assistant manager, Glenn Roder, who hadn't had much success at, you know, in his manager career at Gillingham and Watford. He was a very good coach, but I don't think he was a particularly great manager. And in his first season, things go pretty well. They finish seventh. The next year is a complete disaster. There was injuries. There was fallouts. He had a brain clot and a brain tumour that, you know, sidelined him. Yeah, they brought in Trevor Brooking who's a you know, West Ham legend who'd been a sort of key pillar at the FA and West Ham to a slightly lesser extent who nearly kept them up. But with the talent that they had, you know, finishing on 42 points, the highest uh, points total for a team with 38 games Premier League season, it was still a, a catastrophe. You know, it was a lack of vision by West Ham in terms of not getting in a better replacement for Harry Renner. There's one thing to let him go. Harry Renner can be a you know, difficult person at the best of times and can be a bit stroppy. That's you know, well known. However, there's no doubting his chops, his talent as a manager. And replacing him you know, with the cheap option and the easy option was really a, a derogation of, of you know, common sense. And as a result, with the talent they had, they threw it away. You know, with Alan Pardew, you know, he built this young, hungry West Ham team that were playing good football. But they were un relatively unheralded players. And really the turning point of his, you know, managerial reign was the signings of Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano. So at this point, Terence Brown is still the chairman. But English football is moving towards high investment. You know, Leeds were starting to spend money. Chelsea were spending money under Ken Bates. You had, you know, obviously, Man United was this huge monolith, and there was always talks that they were going to be bought by Sky or by a foreign owner. And so at this point, and then you had this sort of beginnings of Roman Abramovich. And when Kia Jurassabin, who is an agent, you know, really big player, you know, comes to West Ham and says... I can get you, you know, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascarano who are playing for Corinthians in Brazil. They're two of you know, Argentina's most talented players, young players. You know, players who would never have gone to West Ham, you know, as it wasn't in their wildest dreams in terms of their budget, in terms of their status. You know, Tevez at this time was being, you know, dubbed the new Diego Maradona. And so the expectation was is that Jurassabin would then by West Ham and using his contacts and his power as a super agent would be able to get you know West Ham all of these brilliant young players faced with this changing landscape the scars of having lost this you know class of 99 the lure of Jurassic's offer was a shortcut you know it was a way for West Ham to get to the top it so as a result it was irresistible there would be new foreign money there would be high-profile players. It would give West Ham a new identity and a legitimacy 
uh, that they were really going to be able to compete. That this wasn't going to be these one-off seasons like you know, 99, you know, like 86. You know, West Ham's localism and lack of infrastructure, the relatively small stadium, the poor training ground, the sort of lack of reach behind their you know, traditional stronghold of East London and you know, Essex. It, you, it, you can understand what West Ham were trying to do, but, but it fails. You know, Jurassic doesn't make a bid for the club. Eventually an Icelandic billionaire does, and you know, Maserano doesn't settle. You know, doesn't play particularly well, and he makes about seven appearances. And Tevez comes in overweight, doesn't particularly put a huge amount of effort into trying to you know, learn the language or get involved in the culture. And it upset the squad. The, you know, the dynamics, the results start to fall away. There's sort of ructions in the squad. And some of the underlying problems, some of the you know, players, younger players, who were now you know, getting used to Premier League money and the status that it affords him, they were buying, they were nicknamed the Baby Bentley squad. And, you know, Pardew was relatively, you know, he'd been managing at Reading in the sort of Division 1, Division 2. This was really his first shot at being in the Premier League. And West Ham start falling down the table. You know, he, Pardew gets you know, fired, sacked. And eventually, in sort of panic, the new ownership start to embrace short-termism. So they get Alan Kerbishley and now... You know, just as a say West Ham. And it was a kind of Larry Moe sop to, you know, the local boys done good. It was the first sort of beginnings of, you know, gesture politics starting to affect, infect West Ham. You know, Kirby had played for the club, but he'd, you know, spent 15 years managing Charlton and managed to establish them in the Premier League. And they're able to survive relegation. Tevez eventually, back end of the season, pulls it round and scores seven goals. And they're able to, you know, survive relegation. And there's a controversy that, that sort of abounds even today. So the third party ownership elements of the loan deal with uh, Tevez and Mascherano were against the rules. So really, theoretically speaking, they were both ineligible. But, you know, Tevez was able to play on for the rest of the season and was really the, the lodestar for keeping them up. He was the main player in the, you know, scoring them the goals and eventually Sheffield United, who went down instead of West Ham, took West Ham to court. West Ham had to pay them, I think, £30-40 million pounds worth of compensation for the you know, illegal players. So at this stage, I think West Ham learned the, the wrong lessons. You know, their first brush with you know, celebrity football wasn't successful yes it did keep them up but really the damage it had done to the young squad to you know, Pardew who was a really promising manager and his replacement by Kirbishley who at this point was really in the backswing of his career you know he no one would describe Alan Kirbishley as an inspirational figure it wasn't was unlikely that he was going to take them to the next level really what Kirbishley could do and what his goal was at West Ham was stabilising them in mid-table. And even that doesn't work. He gets fired. You know, you have the financial meltdown in Iceland, which, you know, 
massively affects their chairman, who loses a huge amount of money, and West Ham are, you know, falling apart the seams, and eventually are taken over by the Gold Brothers and David Sullivan, who had previously owned Birmingham, Birmingham City, and were again, you know, local boys made good. Where you would have, I suppose, naturally assume that they would try and take West Ham back to the old West Ham identity. In other words, focusing on youth development, you know, getting in a young manager, you know, really trying to, you know, in the long term, build up West Ham's infrastructure, build up their, the identity to a more modern outlook, you know, a repurposing of West Ham. It doesn't happen. They start going for, you know, celebrity managers you know, in Avram Grant. Now, and Gianfranco Zola. Now, with Gianfranco Zola, yes, he was a young manager. It was his first job. But it was far more of a sop to the idea of you know, Zola's playing career. You know, his you know, joining Chelsea when they started to rise up from mid-table mediocrity into winning cups, into the Champions League, and then you know, his leaving just before Abramovich takes over, and the trophies and the you know, league titles and the fames you know, really, really exploded. And so as a result, in some ways, Zola become the personification of Chelsea's rise, and I think the... Signing him as manager was the idea that he would do the same for West Ham, this time as a manager. And so when he doesn't work out, they bring in Avram Grant. So it's the same process. Avram Grant had been you know, the director of football at Chelsea, then you know, stepped into the managerial you know, role after Jose leaves and takes him to a Champions League final, takes him to the League Cup final. And is very much a nearly man. He nearly you know, gets Chelsea their first Champions League. Yeah. And so I think West Ham's thought process was that he could do the same thing. He, the sheen of his success at you know, Chelsea in terms of being high profile and managing this you know, particularly difficult squad that Chelsea had at the time would be that he would almost be the director of football and the manager and would use his contacts and his name to push West Ham to the next level. And that fails monumentally. You know, they get relegated. They finish bottom. And at this point, they it's an they have an agonizing reappraisal. And in it becomes the point one that West Ham must be a Premier League club at all costs. You know. Point two is if West Ham are in the championship, promotion must be achieved at all costs. As quickly as possible. You know, point three really comes through as you know, West Ham cannot rely on young, up-and-coming managers. You know, name recognition is vital to bestow prestige to attract high-profile signings. You know, and sort of the wider point of that they West Ham must expire out of localism to you know really break off the shackles to try and break through this sort of glass ceiling that West Ham have been sort of up against historically and this agonizing reappraisal really shows in the managers that they've hired since Alan Pardew left you've had obviously I've discussed Adam Grant Gianfranco Zola you know and now the current manager Manuel Pellegrini 
who'd managed at Man City, who'd managed at Real Madrid. The idea is, is that those managed celebrity managers will be able to take West Ham into Europe because they've been into Europe, because they play good football, because they will attract great players. And you know, even Slaven Bilic comes under the celebrity manager. He'd taken you know, Croatia up to the you know, semi-finals of the European Championship, and he kind of also had that element of the local boy done good. And when the celebrity managers have failed, so Zola and Avram Grant, and even Slaven Bilic to a certain extent when the first year of the London Stadium, they will then immediately, as per their new, you know, guidelines, they'll go to an arch pragmatist. You know, and Alan Kerbishley, with the idea of you just keep you, you keep us up. You know, with Sam Allardyce, it was you will get us promoted out of the championship and you will establish us in the Premier League. And even David Moyes. In other words, the idea was stabilise West Ham and keep them up. And really all of these managers, you know, in terms of Grant, Pellegrini, Moyes, Allardyce and Kerbishley, they're on the back end of their careers. You know, as you know, outside of Zola, who was probably too green for the role, and you know, Slaven Bilic, they haven't really had a manager that was in his prime. And even with Slaven Bilic, they weren't giving him the role for long term. They weren't going to sit there and go, here is a you know, five-year contract goal that is armour-plated. We are not going to sack you. We want you to be here. We want you to build the foundations. In the end, you know, the first season, he does really well. They finish seventh. The second that things start going wrong at the, you know, in the first season, you know, he had injuries. There was the move to London Stadium, which was, you know, faintly traumatic. There was, you know, immediately the first thought was, we have to survive relegation. And if that means Slaven Bilic has to go and David Moyes comes in, that will be, you know, in other words, we cannot get relegated. The thing is, is that, I suppose, in, you know, the changes from, in the demise of the age of localism in English football, is that relegation is so huge. I mean, we've already seen that the relegations in 2000, particularly, and even 2011, in terms of losing Scott Parker, who'd been reigning football player of the year, to Tottenham, how that had damaged West Ham, you know, in terms of losing all of that that young talent that could have been the bedrock for the next great West Ham team, and you know the finances now of getting relegated are so huge and are so damaging to West Ham that actually avoiding relegation has you know takes precedence over long term development. In other words, relegation for West Ham doesn't necessarily you know in Previous generations had been, you know, it had been bad, but in the end, West Ham would always come back. And usually, when they came back, good things would then happen from that. They would win FA Cups. They would, you know, kick on to the next level because there would always be, you know, a decent manager, you know, underwriting it. You'd have, you know, Lyle that stayed there for years. You had Harry Redknapp that stayed for years. And I think it's interesting to note, you know, if you look at something like the Southampton model. In terms of you know being able to attract you know good young managers you know Maurizio Pochettino, Ronald Koeman develop you know spending a huge amount of money and effort into their youth system 
which has produced you know a laundry list of great players. You know, Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, Theo Walcott, Gareth Bale, and you know, creating the signings of you know Victor Wanyama, Virgil Van Dijk, Sadio Mane, and then selling those players on. And I think that the the scars from all of the players that they've had to sell in the last sort of generation and that they've gone to Spurs, that they've gone to Chelsea and really helped underwrite their success means that they don't want to follow the, the Southampton model, which I think is probably more suitable for West Ham than what they're currently doing at the moment. But I suppose their point is that... and. In some ways, it's admirable that they are trying to kick on. That they're not just content to be in mid-table in the Premier League and just collect the checks. And maybe once a yeah, you know, once every ten years they'll get to a semi-final or a final. You know that they want to break that glass ceiling. You know to go beyond you know the seventh to ninth. You know relying on cup finals. But you'd have to say that for me, the West Ham, a new identity that has been, I think, really built by Sullivan and Gold and you know Karen Brady. To it's gesture politics. It's you know it's birthed West Ham as you know, new West Ham as shortcut FC. You know, the you know, hiring of Slaven Bilic was a local. You know it's the. It was the path of least resistance. It was something that would, you know, yeah, you know, path of least resistance. It was something that would, you know, make the fan base happy, because it would be harken back to the old West Ham identity of local boys made good. You know, at least this is a modern sort of retelling of it, because obviously now you can't have, you know, it's unlikely to have the Steve Potts. You know, Mark Noble very much is a sort of last of the Mohicans figure. In that regard, you don't have players that you just get through the youth system, play 300 times. You know, there's far too much turnover, there's far too much pressure to succeed to have those kind of players. That's very much, you know, an example of the past. But for me, this shortcut FC that started really with the Tevez and Mascarano signings, with the, you know, celebrity managers, it was the idea that the celebrity will fix it, that the that the this need for legitimacy through big signings and that that is the way that West Ham will get success it means they've spent a huge amount of money you know they've really neglected their youth setup really the only two players that I can think of that's really made a huge impact in recent years has been Reese Oxford now Reese Oxford had been at Spurs as a kid as an attacking midfielder striker got released as a teenager, went to West Ham and they kind of redeveloped him into a centre mid slash centre centre back. He had a couple of great appearances when he was 16, especially a win at Arsenal at the Emirates first game of the season. And he never really kicked on. I mean there was so much expectation he ended up going sent out on loan to Germany for a couple of years and he, he got sold on. You then had Declan Rice who they got as a kid as a teenager from Chelsea when they'd released him. And that was a mistake from Chelsea, but you know, obviously with Chelsea's youth system you have so much talent, it's easy for someone to, you know, slip through the cracks. And now he's, you know, again, reconstituted as a, you know, centre midfielder slash centre back. 
But other than that, not much has come out of Rush Green in recent years. And even some of the players that have done well, let's say you take uh, Grady Tijana, who's a quite promising attacking midfield player, they haven't backed him. They've just then gone and signed a load of attacking midfield players for big money. Really pushing him out. I don't think he's realistically going to break into the West Ham team. He's currently out on loan. And I think at the end of the season, he'll probably go. You know, I can understand West Ham due to the scars that they've had from their relegation, from you know, losing all of the, the young talent that they have. But that's not an excuse to just avoid long-term planning. You know, if you compare it to, let's say, Leicester... You know, Leicester haven't spent, I think, the same amount of money that West Ham have done. And when West Ham, and when Leicester has spent money, it's because they've, you know, received it. You know, in terms of signing Kante, selling him to Chelsea. You know, selling Rihad Mahrez to Man City. You know, selling, selling Harry Maguire. So at all stages, they've signed, you know, unheralded prospects from France. N'Golo Kante from the lower leagues, you know, James Madison. They've had players like Ben Chilwell and Harvey Barnes come out through their youth system. They've had Jamie Vardy come from the lower leagues. They've had Kasper Schmeichel come from the lower leagues. All of those players have, for the money that they've been put in, have produced so much excess value. You know, they've created dividends. The players that they have bought, you know, Morris for a few hundred thousand and then sold for 60 million have allowed them and they've had a long-term plan. So even when they won the Premier League, not by accident, but in you know, a complete shock, where everything just went well, it was unsustainable. But over two or three years, they then got the right long-term manager in Brendan Rodgers, and now they're playing great football, and they've got money in the bank, and it's a young, talented, well-put-together squad with you know, the right amount of experience, the right amount of... You know, young prospects and the right amount of, you know, players who are currently you know well established. It's not too young. It's not too old, and the ownership need to take a huge amount of credit, whereby West Ham have not got the same amount of money back from selling players. You know, their squad is far more older. It's you know not anywhere near as well balanced. It's a bit too top heavy in terms of attacking midfielders. There's not much defensive cover. You know. They haven't really made any recent signings that have been that have given value. In other words, when you sign Felipe Anderson for thirty-eight million pounds, the only way you're going to get excess value is he starts playing like a sixty million pound player, uh, and that's not happened. Even let's say take Isa Diop, they signed for twenty-two million. He's been a great centre half, but other than that, you know his value is still probably I'd say thirty, maybe forty million pounds. But then if you're signing players like Lucas Fabianski, he's done a great job. But then he's, there's no resale value. He's not going to get any better. And the amount of money that they put in, and if you then look at their backups, they've signed David Martin, who would be a perfectly acceptable third-choice goalkeeper. No, he's not the greatest. He was Millwall's backup goalkeeper last year. Really, you're signing him because you know his dad is Alvin Martin. He was a free transfer. He was a West Ham legend, and he's cheap. But then your second choice goalkeeper, if you're, you know, Lucas Fabianski, the first choice goalkeeper is in his early 30s, he's not going to be around forever. Needs to be either a you know, young goalkeeper who you can groom to be the next great West Ham goalkeeper, 
or someone cheap but reliable who's experienced in the Premier League. Instead, they signed Roberto, who was you know, well known to the director of football, but he was old. He was cheap but had no experience in English football. So when Fabianski's got injured, he's played, he's made boatload of mistakes, no experience in English football, and does and his game you know, doesn't look like it suits English football particularly in terms of crosses, in terms of you know, dominating the box. And it was such a poor thought out, full thoughtless signing that hasn't achieved anything. So it's actually been you know, it's easy to get a goalkeeper who's cheap but experienced, or you get a young goalkeeper who's promising. So there's no value to it. And in the end, you know, this it you know, this injury has you know really put a huge amount of pressure now on the team because they're dropping points. And there's no upside. Leicester City are far more in their identity. You know, it's localism is a far bigger part of it of their club now than it is at West Ham. And for me, the lack of long-term planning is really, for me, an abrogation of ownership as custodianship. In other words, West Ham are desperate for success and Sullivan and Gold are ageing. And that's not me being harsh about it. It's just a simple fact. And I don't think that they are, at the moment, willing to sit there and wait for five, ten years for the, you know, the patience that you would need to really build something long-standing. And you know, they want the success now. They want le- the, the legitimacy. They, I think, are in some ways scared that if you went down the route of you know, signing a young manager, of really putting the emphasis on the youth system, you know, I mean, a lot of the work on the training ground has been very, has been very rushed and ill-organized. In other words, they're just adding. You know, it's there's no sort of long-term plan. Yes, they are trying to update the facilities. Yes, they are trying to improve their youth setup, but they're doing it from such a position of weakness because you know Spurs, Arsenal, and Chelsea have have done this years previously and are starting to get the benefits. You know, Tottenham have had had you know, Harry Winks come through and if you look at it Harry Winks's career at this stage he's played a Champions League final he's played in Europe he has you know had caps for England at this stage he he has already you know surpassed you know Mark Noble's career he's got to a higher level you know now than Mark Noble has over his whole career now the difference is is that if Mark Noble is not going to get West Ham any money in terms of a transfer fee and that's not me criticising Mark Noble I think he's had a fantastic career I think he's been a fantastic servant to West Ham United Football Club and I think that he should be far more of a blueprint for what West Ham Football Club should be looking to, to do for the next great West Ham United team you know, my point is is that if Harry Winks doesn't make it at Spurs, it you know this is really his career is, is at crossroads. Either he's going to become a fantastic box to box midfielder or a holding midfielder, and you know win forty, fifty, sixty England caps and be a fulcrum of Tottenham's next great team, or 
over the next two years. He might become a decent midfielder, maybe good, but not quite the top level at which point you can sell him, which is what we did with you know, Ryan Mason. He got an England cap, played in Europe for Spurs, did pretty well, got help Spurs, you know, under the early years of the Pochettino, get up to the you know Champions League qualification. Didn't quite make it. We then could, we, you know, Spurs then sold him to Hull for ten million pounds plus. If we sell Harry Winks, it would be for you know twenty, thirty million pounds. You know, really, West Ham's sellable assets is Declan Rice, and yes, they will get a, quite a large amount of money for him. But but how much money would they then have to spend to then try and replace him and replace you know. It's really, you're not just buying a, a centre you know, defensive midfielder, you need to buy a couple of fullbacks, you need to buy a centre half, a, a young goalkeeper. You know, it's still, they're still behind. And, and if you look at it, they've spent a huge amount of money on Manuel Pellegrini, who's at the down, you know, the backswing of his career again. You know, he'd been managing out in China. He signed a three year contract. He's you know, now 66, he's only got. 18 months left on his contract. West Ham are now, you know, after a decent start to the season, you know, still haven't qualified for Europe. At this point, really, realistically, they're hoping to get back to mid-table. And, you know, just stability at this point. You know, are they, is he going to stay in the long term? I doubt it. You know, instead of having a plan, they signed Pellegrini. You know, as a celebrity coach, they've given a huge amount of money. And I don't think he's going to get better as a coach. In the end, he they've given him the responsibility of hiring a director of football, who is his own hand-picked man, which is not how you do it. You get the director of football who sets the agenda and the culture at the club that you know is give you know, you know ownership is the is the custodian of the club's identity. And it's the director of football who then has to, you know, set the culture and the, you know, the long-term plan. It all has to be, you know, there has to be a synergy. You know, the manager has to you know, lead the first team squad and it all has to be joined up. And really with West Ham, what you have is a collection of mid to late 20s attacking midfielders on big money And you know what's the rumours that are coming out? There was an article in the Athletic saying that the squad is kind of split between the high-priced attacking midfield players who are kind of out for number one. They're looking to make sure at the end of the season their numbers look good in terms of goals and assists, so they're not tracking back, which is then showing that the amount of money that they haven't put into the fullbacks, to the centre halves and defensive midfield other than Declan Rice. They're still relying on Mark Noble, who's coming to the end of his career. And as a result, the club the football isn't been hasn't been particularly good. It hasn't been consistent. You know, there's not much young talent coming through. And there are question marks really around, you know, the style of football that, you know, Pellegrini is trying to play and whether it's likely to be, you know, successful. At this stage is he going to see out his contract? And if things don't turn around, if they're going to have to sack him at some point this winter, what's the likely possibility that they're going to have to go for another arch-pragmatist? 
just someone to get them through to the end of the season to maintain them as a Premier League football club. In conclusion, I would have to say the new identity that has been created by ownership is not fit for purpose. And and the London Stadium is the classical example of that. It was a shortcut to a previous infrastructural weakness. They didn't have the money to really redevelop you know, Upton Park. You know, Upton Park was perfectly fine. It was you know, mid-30s. You know, it had more than enough capacity for what West Ham's needs were. But the London Stadium was a classic example of shortcut FC. It was a way of you know, showing that, that you were now a big club because you had a big stadium with you know, a massive you know, set of season ticket holders. But it's not fit for purpose. It was the classic example of gesture politics. They said that this stadium, you know, they gave mock-ups that made the you know, stands look closer to the pitch than it was. And so the actual reality when they got there is that it's not fit for purpose. You know, it, you know, the anger and frustration that you know showed up in the rioting they had against Burnley a couple of years ago, it's not a stadium that is perfect for football. It is not it's not conducive to producing a great atmosphere. It's not their home. It's you know, a place that's rented there trying to make the best of it. You know, in terms of, you know, on the branding of the new badge, they put London because they're in some ways from, from always trying to you know, gain a legitimacy. West Ham are not London's team. They are not London. They are East London. That is what West Ham United Football Club has been about since day one. And I, I think it's a slap in the face to try and do some, you know, low brand advertising to try and get their way around it. You know, it's a fantastic achievement that West Ham you know, can fill 60,000 seats and have 40,000 plus season ticket holders. It shows you the range of possibilities that exist for West Ham United Football Club. And that instead of having you know, Jack Sullivan, the uh, heir apparent, doing documentaries you know, as a, as a self-aggrandizing way of you know, positioning himself to then you know, eventually assume the mantle of ownership rather than actually you know using that documentary as a way to celebrate the you know women's football's you know, revitalization in this country and the success of the WSL <laughs> the fans of West Ham United deserve a long-term plan that is and an ownership that is interested in revitalizing the West Ham United identity that marries the best parts of West Ham, which is localism, the passion of the fans, what it means to be from East London, what it means for, for West Ham fans all over the world to be proud of that history, for the club's ethos to be focused not on the latest celebrity signing, in this desperate attempt for you know legitimacy and to shortcut themselves into the top six, but actually to be committed to creating the next generation of local boys done good, you know to get 
you know, young, impressive managers to who want to, you know, build West Ham into, into a great side, to have young, talented players, you know, canny signings, and to play the proper West Ham way. Thank you for listening.